Hey guys, just before the podcast starts, just want to say if you like what we do here on the Prestige or on Kaiju FM as a whole, please support us. Tell me for some love. If you go to Kaiju FM and follow the links to support us, throw in a couple of quid, throw in dollars, they'd really go a long way for us to continue doing this. Cheers, guys, and uh, on with the show. Welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and then discuss some of the ideas and themes that that film throws up. And as always we end the show with our recommendations for further reading or further watching inspired by this week's film. Before we kick off though, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. So I am, I've got a mission this year. So my mission this year is to watch a lot more westerns. I discussed this previously after we talked about Magnificent Seven. So this this week I have started that in earnest, and I have watched The Searchers. Now I've seen The Searchers before. Um, it, it's not a new film to me. Uh, it's nineteen fifty six, John Wayne, um, starring film from director John Ford, and in many ways is is the classic western. It is it is the it is the western's western, shall we say? It is. Beautiful. It is, you know, sweeping vistas and glorious sunsets, and John Wayne being stern and tough. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it last time. I must say, last time I saw it, I saw it in the um, the widescreen, super widescreen version, and that was um, far better than seeing it on my TV screen. Because it, it, it benefits from the uh, the wide vistas. Where did you see it first of all? I saw it in the cinema first time around at university. But it does lead into a nice story that when I was about eighteen, I went to the National Film Museum, and there, me and my dad watched Once Upon a Time in America. No, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, in ultra widescreen, which is about one hundred and fifty degrees of screen. It's kind of like almost all the way around. Not quite one eighty, but almost the entire mm. way around. And that was a filmic experience that I've never quite rivaled. Obviously, it's a, it's a long, intense film, that is. But seeing those Western vistas on that kind of ultra-widescreen was certainly an experience that I'll always remember. Brilliant. But that wasn't this week. That was years ago. This week, The Searchers. I've got one good film and one bad film. I've watched two films this week. Which do you think I should go for? How are you, you feeling positive? Yes. Okay, then I'll go for the good film this week. And this this week I saw a film I hadn't seen for ages and I'd forgotten how good it was. And I think I'd sort of dismiss it for being of its time and a bit flashy and I don't know. It's it's Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. And okay. rewatched it and actually it's a lot better than I gave it credit for. There are some good performances in there. There are, everyone knows Leo DiCaprio, but people like Harold Perrineau that go on to do other good work, things like Zero Duck 30, I believe. Um, and it's just all round a great film. It's shot in an interesting way. Lots of the things that I've talked about Edgar Wright doing in the past with the way he, he directs it, uh, are things that Baz Luhrmann also does. And it does interesting things with Shakespeare's text. And I just enjoyed it. And I've forgotten 
it's as I said, it's it's a it's probably of its time. It's a it's a late nineties film, um, and part of the reason I liked it so much might have been nostalgia for that period and things like Cardigan's Love Ball. I remember quite fondly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, it it's a good film, good solid film. And I enjoyed it. It's one thing I do. It's one of those films I do want to talk about at some point in the podcast. Maybe when we hit season three and we uh, looking at uh, directors, mm. that will be one that we can we can pick up. This week we're going to talk about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One. These are dark times. There is no denying. Tell me where he is. Our world has faced no greater threat than it does today. But you can't fight this war on your own, Mr. Porter. He's too strong. Deathly Hallows 1 is the 2010 seventh film out of eight, first part of the last book. Um, and it's. <laughs> Yet again, a David Yates film, so he returns to direct the film, and the usual suspects return in terms of acting talent. Um, that's something we will go on to talk about. I think about how there are, and um, there are essentially no new characters. Um, well, there there are a few unsettling characters. You have um, Bill Nye return, Bill Nye turning up, and you have. Um, Risa fans as well, but apart from that, it's largely the same cast. Um, as we said at the end of last week's episode, this is where the series diverges from the earlier books and films. Harry doesn't return to Hogwarts for his final year, and instead he and Ron and Hermione hunt down the remaining Horcruxes, which we found out about last film. It's essentially a three-hander involving their quest to find the Horcruxes. And there I will leave it. Okay. Rob, what's your take on this film? Um, I've gone through cycles with this film. When I first saw it, when it first came out, I wasn't sold. Now, I think, as we discussed earlier, this basically is the first half of a novel. So it isn't a standalone story in itself. It is you know, preamble to, to the end of, of the story. And so when I first saw it, I really wasn't a fan. Mm. I just thought, well, there, there, nothing happens here. You know, it's, it's just sitting around. It's not really doing anything. But on re-watching it, I have really grown to like this film um, in a way I didn't when I first saw it. And a part of that, I think, is down to... I feel that the three main actors have now reached a point where they're as good as they're going to get, the act acting-wise. And I'd say at least... Two, two and a half of them are good actors at this point. Mm. And I think I certainly start to enjoy the characters. Whereas previously I was like looking for a good film. This is now, that's a world I want to live in. It's now a world I care about. And it is a film of good moments. There's some great moments in it. The um, scene in which they infiltrate the ministry is very good. The scene in which they destroy the first, the, the, um, Locket is very good. The interplay between all the characters um, and how when they're travelling is very good. I enjoy particularly the start of the film when the three of them end up in central London 
I always enjoy this mixture of like the oldie worldie magic with the modern London. And I think that that's that's something I enjoy. I do think it has problems. I think that it can be a bit disjointed. And I think it does suffer well it doesn't suffer, but it is very clearly part of a franchise. This film cannot exist by itself in any way, shape or form. Mm. Uh, it, 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 without the pre-knowledge it makes no sense and without what comes next it's open-ended and pointless. Mm. But I think it does do a great job of moving a lot of pieces into place so that the next film can be just straight action I'll come to this next week. But it does a lot of work getting everything into place for that. Mm. Um, so I appreciate it in a sort of a mechanical way in terms of of the overriding narrative of the franchise, but I also enjoy the moments within it. Yeah, Sam, um, I agree with you, and I think I went through your um, process of not liking it and then actually appreciating it in a much shorter period of time. And I watched this twice within a week, um, and the first time I thought. A little bit. Well, as as you did, there were there were lulls to this film, and not a lot happened. And the second time round, I thought, well, actually, this is more enjoyable than I thought it was. Um, mm. There are there are lulls, and that's sort of to be expected when you've only got half a book here. Um, but you're right. There are, and and at times it feels a bit like. They have to go to these certain places. They have to jump through hoops. So it, it sort of things have to be done before they get to where they need to get to, go to. So they they have to, for example, go to Malfoy Manor and they have to um, go to Godric's Hollow in order for these crucial set place set pieces to take place. Mm. So in order for the Bethilda backshot sequence to culminate as it does and in order for the um well the 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 sequence with um bellatrix which culminates in the the tragic episode right at the end to take place a certain amount of journey needs to take place um so it it, it does suffer a bit from that um I do think, actually, this is a more straightforward film. And that was something I sort of enjoyed about this. That So this does feel like much more of a straightforward film, apart from the, I suppose, the, the episodes where the locket has an effect on the mental state of those wearing it. You kind of know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, if you see what I mean. There, there is a very, very clear sense of, um, Harry and his friends going out to do something, and who who are the 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 evil presences in this? So there's, mm. there's no, no like we had. I compare it with something like Order of the Phoenix, where we had a it was much more uncertain as to like some people believed Harry, but they didn't before. So you have a character like Seamus who changes in the film, um, and you're not really sure where certain people are positioned. Um, so in the, in the previous film, in, in The Half-Blood Prince, you didn't know whether Snape was a force for good or, or for bad. Certain mm. parts of the film, he appears to be caring for Harry, and then other times he's very definitely not. 
I think in the context of this film, very very definitely you know who the good guys and who the bad guys are. I don't know. That that may well change in, in the last film. I suspect it will do, given the nature of the sort of narrative we're talking about. But it, it seemed fairly cut and dried in this one. Mm. So I enjoyed that about this film. I, I see what you're, you're saying about being a bit more straightforward. I think that's, I mean, it's, it's, it has a purity to the film in that there is, as I say, there isn't an antagonist to fight. There, there is a mission to do, and like, I suppose the world itself is the antagonist. They, they are, you know, we look back at something, we talked about briefly about like the Martian, where the Martian is a very tense film, but hasn't got an antagonist. The antagonist is the world. Yes, and whilst yes. here it's much more kind of um, dictatorial and sort of the fascist nature of, of the world rather than the nature nature of the world, it's certainly the same sort of feeling. They are trying to exist against this mystery, trying to exist against this threat of force and of capture, um, and this background of a world that's changing. But there isn't really a bad guy. Um, mm. And... It is worth noting that it occurred to me that since Voldemort came back, he hasn't really been a bad guy. He isn't threatening in a way that Bellatrix certainly is. No. Um, he's just kind of there, lurking around in the background. Um, and I must say, it's been a while since I read the book, so I can't speak to whether the books are any better at doing this. But it does seem strange that Voldemort is the big bad here. And we haven't actually seen him be a big bad he's, he's, he's evil clearly um, but it's a very different kind of bad guy comparing him and Bellatrix yes and it, and it feels well that that scene right at the beginning in Malpoy Manor I, I was struck by I mean just how scared of him Lucius is and you see him visibly shaking when he gives up his wand and you think well why are you scared of him? And you're right, it's because you haven't seen him do anything bad. I mean, you see, at the end of that scene, you see Charity Burbage being struck down and eaten by Nagini, and you think, okay, yeah, he's done something bad then. But before that, like, what he was just walking around in a menacing fashion? Why is Lucius so scared of him? Mm -hmm. we, have, we haven't had, the, suppose, the, the visual proof of the evilness and the competency of Voldemort because he can be evil you know Peter Pettigrew is evil but he isn't competent in the way that Voldemort may have to be and we, we have I mean, yes the duel with um, Dumbledore is it was impressive but I think the film and this, this is maybe something that we can talk about next week we talk about wrapping the whole thing up one of the things I think the film hasn't done is explained how magic can be hard how do you mean? In the, we've got Dumbledore. We've got um, what's it called? Uh, Voldemort fighting, and at no point do we get an understanding of why they are better wizards than Harry. Mm. We haven't got an understanding of what makes them better at dueling. It, it, no, we don't know they need more spells. Is it they more, more spells? Are they faster at doing those spells? Are their spells more powerful? And why are they more powerful? And especially in this one, we get this story of this this wand, this all-powerful wand. But at no point do we have an understanding of what makes that wand all-powerful. It's like, 
to provide a really weird analogy, and actually I know nothing about the the, the sport, so I won't take it anywhere, but it's kind of like Formula One. Mm. And I suppose it's like, I mean, think, think about, I suppose it's quite a good analogy because I know nothing about it. So I'm coming to this world thinking, what makes him better than him? Like, yes. What makes someone like Lewis Hamilton better than someone in the same car? Because surely you, they're just doing the same thing. So isn't it the car that makes a difference? In this case, isn't it just the one that makes a difference? I mean, is, is Dumbledore inherently better than Snape, for example, and yet he's just got... Or is it just that he's got this Elder Wand? And that isn't... I think that's one thing that... I must say, I can't speak to the books because I can't remember them that well, but it isn't, it isn't explained, you know. And I think that's where, if they wanted to make Voldemort more of a threatening bad guy... They needed to explain that he's like maybe it is that he's willing to do the thing no one else is. He's willing to make horses. You know, mm. he hasn't got that. Is that why he's so threatened? And that's fine. But you know, why is it, Dumbledore is this epic wizard who you know defeated everybody? Why didn't he just stop Voldemort? Mm. Um, and it just, it just, I don't think they've done enough work in explaining that element of. Competency. You know, we do see early on that, you know, when they're doing the Wingardium Leviosa, the spell they learn in the first film, and that Hermione masters it first time and Ron can't. But that's just pronunciation. It's just learning how to say words better. Mm. You know, a practice at that, and you can just say sentences. We haven't got that built up on it. But that's, that's a, a, a quibble, a minor quibble, but it's one that I'll mention. Mm. It's weird, and it plays into this relationship between the characters as well because mm. one of the reasons and it, it's I suppose it's a, it's a small part of why he's attracted to her but one of the reasons that Ron is attracted to Hermione and different to Hermione is that she is better at saying spells mm. she is she is a better wizard or is it witch? I don't know, but she she is witch. better at magic. Than, okay, she's better witch than he is a wizard, and he says that. And so he says, like in the, in the scene that the after they they've smashed up the coffee shop at the beginning, he says, "Well, you do it, Hermione. You're better at spells." And he and he says, when when Harry's trying to run away, he says, "Well, you, are you crazy? We wouldn't get anywhere without Hermione." And there's. He said, "So you are you crazy without Hermione?" And there's a beat, and you think, "Well, is he going to say something profound and, and loving about his relationship with her?" And he says, "No, we, we wouldn't last five minutes without her." And you think, "Oh no, that that's why, that's part of why he cares about her." I think I mean, you've got it right there. I think that leads into the, so the thing I really felt that was in this film, a theme that they're trying to have with the idea of both friendship and family and a group. Let's say friendship. The three of them, it is, the film's on them. Unlike previous films where there's a bit of an ensemble cast, the film is almost entirely on the three of them. And like that moment you talk about where he says, we couldn't go anywhere, we couldn't go at Hermione, and Hermione about this. They, you feel, you start, the first time I feel in these films, you feel their friendship is an honest one. Mm. That They know each other, they know what Hermione's good at, they know what Ron's good at, they know what... Um, Harry, you know, the, the whole thing with the Illuminator, where Ron storms off and then tries to come back, that's all about their friendship and understanding. You know, Dumbledore understood their friendship, 
and the interplay between them. You've got, not to say it's a love triangle, because I don't think there is a love triangle. I think Harry and Hermione are very clearly very platonic. But there is this kind of this triangle of relationships there. Mm. And I think the film tries, for the first time, if we haven't seen up until now, tries to investigate that and, and look at that. It's weird that you say we've had an ensemble cast before, and you, you're right. I mean, the way that the films work, you have a selection of individuals who pull together in an ensemble. So you might yeah. have Kenneth Branagh or Ronaldo Staunton, but the, the cast kind of works as an ensemble. And here you have a different kind of ensemble that rejects that idea of like a, a cast of famous people and just focuses on the ensemble that is this friendship. It's like the friendship, the unit, is the ensemble here. And that's what this focus, this film focuses on. Like mm. Particularly the second half of this, the film is about Ron's relationship with the other two and Hermione's relationship with the other two and Harry's relationship with the other two. So this film becomes about testing that relationship, testing friendship. And when, I mean, Harry says to Ron towards the end, why did you come back? And that feels like it's central to the film. It's not just Harry saying, oh, you haven't been around for, the while, for a while and now you've turned up. It seems to me a, a more, more of a fundamental question. It's like, why, why does he come back? Why do these... Do do friendships last? Mm. And we and we we've we've talked about it before. I mean, we we are we're very close now, but there are times in life when we haven't been. And part of, part part of a, of a close friendship is that you can you can fall out and come back, or you can mm. drift apart physically and come back. And and it's normal, and it continues as it was. So this this film becomes about that friendship rather than, as you say, rather than about the the famous actors that you've had in the cast before. This film is very much about that close-knit friendship. And I think particularly when you get onto the animation at the end with, with the brothers, the story of the brothers, and it's no accident that again you've got three in the same way that you've got three with Ron, Hermione mm. and Harry, that, that that unit is again something that returns. And that's, that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's noticeable that when, when they break open the, the locket, it, obviously they try to stop Ron killing it. And so it casts illusions to, 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 to scare him and stop him. And it isn't about his family dying. It isn't about you know the world ending. It's about... His friends betraying him. Mm. It's about how, um, Harry and Hermione running off in a couple, um, and it it, it t- taps into that deep actual fear of Ron of that, you know, he's he's the lo- lesser of the three, um, and I think you've got you know the, the, it shows that in his mind he's got Harry the chosen one, Hermione who let's be honest is the smart one who does a lot of the work in this thing, and then you've got Ron who's the heart i don't know he's not the he's not the smart one he's not the famous one he's not the clever one he's not the fast one he's the comedy relief in many ways and he's the stalwart friend mm. um and i think a film over time proves 
his worth. I don't think that as a viewer we stop questioning his worth. But it's clear that it's showing that he questions his worth. And that that's where his storm off and the, and the problem with Locke came from. Was it's all about his internal problems with that friendship. I do want to really highlight one little scene that I kind of like but really was really divisive when it was shown. And there's a scene in which um, Harry and Hermione have a dance mm. in the in the um, tent now this is a scene that isn't in the book it was added into the film and some people really hate it because it is slightly awkward and slightly weird um, and slightly out of tone with the rest of the film but I like it because I think we've all been there with a friend when things are just just crap they're just terrible and you end up doing strange things like going for ice cream because what else do you do and it felt to me like that. It felt like a genuine moment between friends, where it's just like you know what, everything's falling apart. Let's you know, let's just have this moment. Um, and I really like that. Mm. So yeah, I, I want to admit, like I know some people really, really, really don't like that scene, but I I do. One thing, it, far be it for me to bring it back to the technicalities of filming, but I did just want to highlight the fact that the transitions in this film are really interesting. Mm. Um, in previous films, and actually this isn't a change in, in directorial style because this is another David Yates film, in previous films you've had softer transitions um, and it, they, they've been something that I haven't really noticed, but it struck me in this film how you have hard cutting to black and then the light coming up transitions in this film mm. Al- almost like Ron losing using the Deluminator in that, that scene where he runs away from them. You have that fading to black and then coming up again. You have that repeatedly in this in, in the film. You have then them at a tent or then switching to the Ministry of Magic, for example. You have repeated transitions like this which are very harsh. So there's something in the structure of the film itself that's saying I'm not mollycoddling you anymore. Mm. I'm not holding you by the hand anymore. This is this is harsh and this is real and people are getting hurt. As you see in in that first sequence which sort of sets the tone for the whole film. That, that first sequence is very much about violence. It's about people getting hurt and people dying. Mm. Or, it, spoiler alert, pets dying included. In and that. Moody. Yeah, Mallow Moody who... who was presented as the the badass and or badasses dies in the first scene. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we'll get to more next week, but I think the film the film generally at this point has done a lot of work to get us ready for everything that's happening. And we, we now, we don't need an explanation about what this magic is or what this is. We just, we, we're on board. Hmm. Yeah. Well then, Rob, do you have any recommendations for us? I do. I've got two uh, this week. Um, I thought about having a, a cheeky third one, but I stopped myself. So I'll just dip my two. Um, and they're both thematic. I haven't got any actors because so there aren't any new actors this week. So I've gone for a thematic, but in kind of different ways. So the first one is very clearly what we're discussing this idea of friendship um, and friends on film and what that means and what it looks like. And that is the 1986 film Stand By Me uh, from Rob Reiner, written by Stephen King. Starring Rue Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton, um, Jerry, and Jerry Maguire. <laughs> uh, the other Jerry. <laughs> it's not Jerry Maguire. Jerry O'Connell. 
it tells the story of, of four friends who travel up a railway track to see a dead body. Um, but it's really about their friendship. It's about the four of them and coming of age and, and the, the encroaching adulthood and what it means to them all and what they are going to be doing. It is a film that definitely spoke to me when I was a teenage boy growing up. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't need me seeing its places, but it certainly is one that I thought about when thinking about friendship in this film. My second film is one that is often talked about, is often mentioned and referenced, but very rarely actually I think people actually see it. It isn't, it isn't a widely watched film these days. And that is the 1969 film Easy Rider. From Dennis Hopper, starring Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Jackson. It's about two bikers travelling across from LA to New Orleans, looking for, I don't know, a real America um, looking for a real experience in the counterculture days of the 60s. It is hugely important in terms of cinema history, but also that feeling in the film where they're just kind of wandering around England, looking for things, trying to find stuff, not finding things, then finding things. I got that same kind of vibe of, kind of like a road trip movie, in kind of feeling. Now, it didn't quite have the same sort of beats as a road trip movie, because a road trip obviously has certain set scenes, we didn't really have that here. Um, but Easy Rider felt that kind of same kind of like wandering, like kind of aimless travel sense that I got from uh, Deadly Hallows. Right. So those are my two. Okay. Um, I have two recommendations as well, um, and one of them is not so much a thematic one as one that was suggested by that scene in Ministry of Magic with rows upon rows of people and people as sort of cogs in a in a corporate machine sort of thing. Um, and actually it's something that we've seen quite a lot of in, in film history. One film that does touch on this that I won't recommend because it's, it's one we've looked at before is The Apartment, um, with that hall with people sitting at desks performing mm. almost mechanical functions. Um, the one I will go for is the very early film that I've mentioned in, in passing but not actually recommended it's Fritz Lang's Metropolis and as well as being important in film history and important in the history of things like the expressionist movement um, it's also a, a really good film in its own right uh, so that's well worth watching brilliant my second film is an actor link, um, but you're right, there, there are no real act, act, new actors in this, so it's, it's, just, it's a returning actor, a character from earlier in the series. And I mention this because he's died recently. It is the late, great John Hurt, who died at the end of January this year who was also in, he was very good as Control in the film Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, which I mm. may well have recommended before. Uh, it's a, it's another, may, maybe another film with a thematic link, with a sense of something maybe aimless at the heart of it. Uh, but it's a very good film. Very well made, aesthetically well worth watching, and good fun as well. Excellent. So guys, we'll be back next week with the final part of our epic 
Harry Potter franchise watch. Till then, you can find both of us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. Are we still on Reddit? We are. Yeah, we're on Reddit still. Um, I just find us under the Kaiju FM Reddit. Uh, subreddit. Um, we are on Facebook at Kaiju FM and all these kind of things. Or just send us an owl. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries.